We are in this series for the year where we're, we're talking about having 2020 vision, seeing what God can do. We know that God can transform lives and having tr- had our lives transformed by Jesus Christ, we've become his disciples and it's now our responsibility to impact our homes, our neighbors and every generation with the hope of Jesus. And that's what we're looking to do. It's what we're praying for. We're in this series right now where we're, what we're looking for here is we're, we're, we're trying to see how homes are made healthy. God made the institution of family. It's first. Uh, there was a man and a woman. They made a family. Then other institutions were to come out of that. And where you find a healthy society, you'll find that the backbone of that, there are healthy families. So what do they look like? How, how do they come about? So last week we were looking at this whole idea of chronos. We're talking about being good stewards of the sequence of our time. Today we're going to talk about kairos. We're going to talk about time that is significant, that is pregnant with meaning, and how important it is that we be able to recognize these defining moments. There are certain moments that God has for us in our life, and our, our children that are in our church, uh, parents, your children need you to point out to them what these defining moments are. They, they happen in the ordinary moments, and so they're easy to miss. And it's super important that we as a church, as grandparents and parents, that we be able to point the next generation to these defining moments. So to do that, we're going to look at one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It's in the ninth book of the Bible. And to understand this text, I'm going to give you quite a bit of background. Someone thanked me for the history lesson in the last service. It's not meant to be a history lesson, but I certainly do want us to understand the scriptures in, in, the, in the appropriate context. So if you've got your Bible, and I, I hope that you do, let's now go to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, Andrew's going to read the, the entire chapter. Let's all stand together in honor of God's word. Again, we're in 1 Samuel. It's the ninth book of the Bible. We're in chapter 3. Andrew, read that for us. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. 
Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am, and Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he may have told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him, and he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems as good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Andrew. If you would, go ahead and, and be, be seated. This was a defining moment in Samuel's life, and he almost missed it. He needed what all children need was a leader to help him see God in that moment. Now, this, this moment was not only a defining moment for Samuel. This was a defining moment for all of Israel. It was even a defining moment for us. It's a defining moment for, for the entire world. You know, I, I tell you regularly that the Bible is not a collection of sayings or stories. It's a single story, creation, fall, rescue, restoration. And it's important that we understand the storyline, that we understand the parts of the Bible that are revealing Jesus Christ to us. So if you will, hold your finger there in 1 Samuel 3, and let's understand the backdrop of this chapter. So we know the Bible begins in Genesis. In Genesis 1, God creates all things. Genesis 6, there's the flood. Out of the flood of the sons of Noah, God focuses in on the Shemites, later known as the Semites, Semitic people. Out of the Semites, God calls Abram. Abram is a, a unique person uh, out of the land of the Chaldeans, out of Iraq. He is called into what is later known as the promised land, modern day Israel. It is this man that God chose to bless all of the world. It was through his line. Now, out of his line, we get what are called the patriarchs. We get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and that's where we, we get these 12 tribes. They were his sons and, and, and grandsons. And so what happens by the end of Genesis is very important. At the, at the, go ahead and turn there. At the end of Genesis, what you see is there's less than 100 Israelites total. They're now in Egypt. Uh, they're staying there. And, and the end of Genesis is Joseph basically being embalmed and, them, and him telling them and them promising him, when God takes us out of this land, we will take your body with us and bury it in the land of promise. So take, go from now the last chapter of Genesis and turn a page and go to Exodus chapter 1. That's 400 years in that one turn. Isn't it amazing how time flies when you're having fun? It's just glorious. So now uh, Israel is still in Egypt. It's been 400 years. Now there's more than 1 million Israelites and they're in bondage. So God raises up a leader, a savior, Moses, who uh, provides them guidance according to God's word and God's way. And so they make it through the Passover. They make it through the Red Sea. They make it to the precipice of the promised land. And then there's new leadership needed because Moses didn't measure up. 
And so you come out of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we come into the book of Joshua. Go now to Joshua. The book of Joshua tells us the story of God's people entering into the promised land. You have to understand the will of God's not always easy. Although the promises were already fulfilled and that they were given the land, they had to take the land. Even though salvation is free and we receive it by grace through faith in Christ alone, we must live this life, which, which makes us in a position where we have to fight sin every single day. So here were the Israelites uh, fulfilling God's promise, uh, obeying his word, going into the land. They, they were conquering it as God commanded them. And, and then Joshua dies, and we'll see at the, at the end, if we have time, what happened there. And then the season of the judges begin. Now, the time of the judges was a terrible, terrible time in, in the history of the world, certainly in the history of Israel. Go to Judges 21, 25, and you can get a basic synopsis of the entirety of the book. Judges 21, 25. Um, the description here is very much like the description of our own country now. Uh, having in 1973 uh, made legal with Roe versus Wade the, the murder of babies, and then the Obergefell decision in 2015 legalizing same-sex marriage, same marriage so-called marriage, we, we have a time when people are doing what they were doing in the time of the judges. So we read in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, in those, day, there, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is what's happening in our country. This is what was happening in the time of Israel. Uh, of Israel. There was no absolute truth. There was moral chaos. People were, were redefining reality and, and basically doing whatever they felt and whatever they wanted. And anyone who dared to stand up and say otherwise, they were often chastised. And God would. He was gracious. He would raise up judges, leaders who would rule the people, but, but they would always fall back into sin. And so it's in this time of despair that go to the next book, we, we find this beautiful little book known as Ruth. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And, and in this story, we see the hand of God and the backdrop, that last, if you will, domino that helps us understand our text for today. So in the book of Ruth, we read about uh, an Israelite man who was suffering uh, along with all of Israel because there, there was, uh, there was a, a, a time of famine. You know, God often speaks through world events. Do you get the sense that God is trying to say something to the world? And so there was a famine. So what, what this man did was, uh, he did what he was, was not supposed to do. He left Israel, the boundaries of Israel, and he went into Moab. And in the land of the Moabites, he gave his sons to, to marry Moabite women. Now those sons died and he died. And so his, his widow was left alone and she decides she's gonna go back. And this Moabitess, this woman who was not a, an Israelite, Ruth, she went back to the promised land with her mother-in-law. And it's there that the kinsman redeemer Boaz marries her. It is there that the, 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 the promise of God begins to come into focus. Look at the very last verse of Ruth chapter four. Ruth chapter four, verse 22. Uh, Ruth and Boaz have had a son. And so out of that, that union, there is a line. And you see where this line leads in, in, in verse 22. Obad fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. 
So it is in the backdrop of God bringing into focus Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the line of Judah, specifically the, the, the way that God had chosen to redeem his people, to put them in the land, the way they were supposed to follow him. At this point, there's only one office, if you will, that's giving leadership to the children of Israel, and that is the office of a priest. God, in this book, in the ninth book, in 1 Samuel, is going to introduce two new officers in, in God's kingdom purpose that point to Jesus Christ. We are about to be introduced to a new line, a new type of person called a prophet. And from that prophet, there will be uh, two men anointed, two kings, one who was rejected, one who was received because he had the heart of God, King David, which is why the last part of Ruth is so important to us in understanding God's story. And so here we are in, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 3, verse 21. And we see how God has prepared Israel. God has now prepared the world for what he wants to accomplish. And now there is this defining moment in Samuel's life. And this defining moment was crucial. Friends, you and I have defining moments in our lives. Some of you have been old, are old enough to, to be able to even point back to specific days that now define your existence. It's important that we be able to help our children define those. It's important that we be able to pass on the word of God so that they can acknowledge them and discern them. This text helps us do that. So take note, take note. Defining moments, when they take place, first of all, they take place when God is at work for his glory. God is always at work and he is always at work for his glory. Friends, it's always about God. What God is doing in the world, it's not about us, it's about him. The grace is he allows us to be a part of what he's doing. The grace is he didn't just abandon us and throw us to the side. The grace is he loves us and he wants us to be a part of what he's doing. Now, at this point, we don't know exactly, exactly how old Samuel is. So the historian Josephus says he was a teenager. And that's probably true because of the responsibilities we see him taking on here at the tabernacle. But what's important to see in my, in my mind is how much Samuel is like Jesus. Samuel was like Jesus in that he, he was not afforded a, a typical family life and upbringing. So you look at, at Samuel's life and what happened. So in chapter one, you see his mother, Hannah, praying for a baby. She's barren. And she tells God, God, if you'll give me a son, I will turn him over to you. I'll put him up for adoption and, and he will serve your kingdom purpose there at the tabernacle. So God answers Hannah's prayer. And, and Samuel is born. And so at about the age of three, she puts him in foster care. And basically, Eli, who is the priest over the tabernacle, becomes the, the foster father, uh, if not just maybe just like kind of the grandfather of Samuel's life. Now, he still had contact with his birth mother and father and his siblings. But how hard do you think that was? Look in, look in verse 19 of 21 of Samuel 2. Every year, his mom and dad would show up with all of his siblings, and she would bring him an ifad, and, and they, would, they would pray for him, and they would celebrate him. But how hard was it at the end of that week of gathering when he saw his parents and his siblings leaving, and there he had to stay, knowing he could not have that family life? 
He couldn't be a part of, of something that simple because God had consecrated him for a greater purpose. And so it was with Jesus Christ. He saw his brother, his stepbrothers and sisters, and he knew my life is utterly different than their life. I've been anointed for a purpose that is bigger and, and, and kingdom and eternal. And so it was with Samuel. And, and Samuel grew like Jesus. You look in verse 26. Now, now, Samuel, uh, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature. And this, this phrase here, you maybe remember it from last week, in favor with the Lord and also with man. That's how the early church grew. If you'll remember in Acts 2, uh, verse 47, that's where we finished last week. It said that the church grew this way. This is how Jesus grew, Luke 2, 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Samuel has been set aside, consecrated, if you will, for the purpose of God. He doesn't have a regular family life. He, he has something very, very unique. He is growing in wisdom and stature with favor with God and man like Jesus. And like Jesus, Samuel was destined by God to serve a purpose that was eternal. Look in verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a, a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And so we see something not only of the prophetic life that Samuel will live, but also points beyond him because this is forever, points to the Messiah, points to Jesus. Now, Eli like either a foster dad or a grandfather Samuel. He was responsible for him. He and his wife were. And this household that Samuel was being raised in, though it was at the tabernacle, this was not a godly home. The sons of Eli were described in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel as wicked. These were evil men that God had determined to put to death because of their sin. So here is this, this one consecrated by God, supposed to be in a, in a good place, in a good home, but he's surrounded by wicked men, evil. And yet God's plan was, didn't falter. And, and what we see here is the power of God. What was the difference between Samuel raised at Eli's home and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas? The one thing I see is this. Samuel had a praying mother. There's nothing recorded in scripture of Hophni and Phinehas being prayed for. Parents, pray for your children. Pray for them and remind them who they are. Every year, Samuel's mom showed up with an ephod and would say to her, say to his son, you are special, your life matters, you're doing something that's big, God loves you, bless your children that way. Tell them what a blessing they are. Tell them why they matter to God. Pray for them. Pray over them. Ask God to do miracles in their life. And, and there is hope. Samuel was prayed for. Hophni and Phinehas, not so much. Now, God speaking to Samuel was significant for many reasons. Look in verse 1. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. It came but seldom. And, and, and so what's happening here is there's, there's actually no real office of prophet. We now know prophets like Amos and Isaiah and all the others. But up to this point, there was never a recognized individual known as a prophet who would speak on behalf of God. And, and that's significant because what God was doing is he was preparing the world that there would be one who was a priest, who was a prophet. And this prophet Samuel was soon to anoint King Saul and then King David, that there would be those three, and I use this term, offices of 
the Israelite people, these were the people who were in authority. The king, the prophet, and the priest. All of them pointed to Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession says this. I did my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation on this. It said, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. This is a defining moment for all of the world because God is now raising up a prophet, having already secured the the work of the priest and soon a king because he's getting the world ready for God to come in flesh. Now, this was... This time was set apart and and seen as significant because there was no, look at that at the end there, there was no frequent vision. In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words for vision. One is marah, and the one used here, though, is hazan. And hazan had to do with a supernatural vision. It was almost something that would happen in an ecstatic state. It was something that was unusual. It was not normal. It was supernatural. It was beyond what human beings could do in and of themselves. What What Samuel experiences in this voice of God speaking to him was a hazan. This was a significant moment. God was raising up the first of all prophets. God was now speaking. This was unusual. This was not typical. He was preparing Samuel for his life. He was preparing Israel for what was to come. He was preparing the world for the Savior. This was a defining moment because God was at work for his glory. That's where you'll always see defining moments, where God is at work for his glory. Second, defining moments take place during seemingly ordinary events. Ordinary events. This was probably a very ordinary day. It was early in the morning, and we know this because you see in verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So what would happen every night as the sun would go down, there was a lamp that would be lit, and it would stay lit until the morning dawn and and it would extinguish itself just by the way it was designed. This was to remind the Israelite people that while they slept, God never slumbered. He was always overlooking them. And so there was a light lit in the tabernacle to say, God, we know you're awake. We know you're watching over. We know that you care for us. What a beautiful picture that is and a reminder of the truth today that God is always with us and God is always looking on. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He never gets fatigued. He never gets overwhelmed. He is God and he is good and he loves us. So the light had not yet gone out. That means it was early in the morning and something very typical was happening. There was a male voice heard in the tabernacle calling Samuel. This was not weird. At this point, Eli is blind. So surely most mornings uh, began uh, for Samuel with him hearing Eli. Samuel, Samuel, come and help me. And so, so what happens is kind of hilarious to me as a, as a person who's, who's been a parent uh, now of three different children and had something like this experience where you're trying to, to, trying to get every, every bit of sleep you can out of every last moment before the day begins only to have a small child walk into your room and say, hey, what are we gonna do today? Doesn't just happen once. You know, here's groggy Eli, just go back to bed. Go away. Then it happens again. I don't know what it would have been like in your house, but that would not have been a pretty moment. 
And then he, child comes in my room three times after I told him, somebody's getting spanked. <laughs> but Eli was wiser and far godlier. And he said, wait a second, God's doing something. Boy, go lay down and tell God you're listening. Now, why, why, did, why did Eli need to communicate this to Samuel? Well, Samuel didn't have a relationship with God. Look in verse seven. This is really interesting. It said, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Hmm. Now, we know he knew the Bible. He knew the stories of the Pentateuch. We also knew that he, he understood the religious practices of the people. But friends, there's one thing to be born in a godly home. There's one thing to know the practices of Christian people. And there's something altogether different to be born again and to have a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, what, he, what Samuel had not yet experienced was what, what it means to be born again. He didn't have new life. He didn't have saving faith. He just had a religious lifestyle and a, and a religious place. Friends, if you have not been born again, it doesn't matter how much you show up to church. It doesn't matter how many stories you may be able to tell. Samuel could tell you all kinds of stuff at this point, but he did not know God. You must know the Lord by grace through faith in Christ alone. And this, this experience changes your life. And this is what was happening. This was a defining moment. And isn't it funny how we rarely know when these moments are happening? I mean, you rarely know when, when something, something very special. You know, I can remember in eighth grade, a basketball game at West End Middle School for one reason. Because I saw this beautiful brown-headed girl, and I looked at a friend of mine and said, who is that girl? And he said to me, she is a church girl. You can forget it. She will never date you. Little did he know how naive her parents were to let her date me. And now she's my wife. But I can remember that day, that typical game at West End Middle School. But it was a defining, it's the first time I saw my wife. I can remember June 27th, 1988, a typical summer day of me getting in trouble and ending it with a conversation with a police officer. But little did I know that within a matter of hours, after not being able to sleep at all at around 3 a.m. on June 28th, I would get on my knees and say, God, forgive me, take my life. Jesus Christ, please forgive me, make me new. And he did. What seemed like a very ordinary day became a supernatural life-changing day because God was at work and there had been training in my life through the preaching of the word in the church I was attending to understand it. Mom and dad, we have a responsibility to set up our home for these conversations so our children can identify them when they happen. That's why Deuteronomy 6 is so important. That's why we quote it a lot around here. And these words I, that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Your children need to hear you talking about scripture all the time. They need to see scripture in your home. They need to see things that you allow and disallow in your home. They need to know that you believe in the authority of God's word, that you honor God in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. This needs to be regular. It needs to be normal. You just talk about these things and you need to use the things that are happening in their life. What makes your child sad? What makes your child laugh? What makes them angry? What makes them afraid? You need to talk about those things in light of God's word. You need to have conversations about the normal things and, and, and know they're not going to appreciate it. 
Yes, they're going to say, oh, mother, please. When they're brushing their teeth at night and you say to them, yep, just like your teeth, sin gets trapped in your life and we need Jesus Christ to scrub it out by the power of his love. And they roll their eyes and then, and then you, they lose something. All right, let's stop right now. Let's pray for her. Oh, mother, I just need to go look for it. Nope, nope, nope. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would provide this, Lord God, because we don't have any sense and because this child won't put their things where I tell them to. So in the, in the name of Jesus, we pray for your help and your forgiveness and your guidance. It's amazing how they learn to do that. So when they're in their college dorm one day and they're in trouble and they're alone and they're scared and, and they feel very alone and they don't think they have value anymore and they're brushing their teeth and they remember, oh yeah, Jesus loves me. When they feel lost and they don't know what they're supposed to do and they're, they're, they're getting older and their families are in, in chaos and there's problems, they remember, oh, we pray to God. See, these very normal moments become defining moments because we teach our children what the word of God says. See, these defining moments, they take place through engagement with mature saints. Eli, Eli said, God's speaking to you, boy. This is a defined moment. This is important. You need to understand this is how God works. Now, Eli, in his wisdom, said, you know what? God's God. When he got the message, he didn't argue it. You know why? Because he knew that God was right. It is so important to understand that the God of the Bible is always right. Friends, there's a lot of people that don't like the God of the Bible, so they want to make up their own. And here's why. Because the God of the Bible is not safe and he's not controllable. The God of the Bible is holy. The God of the Bible is just. And he, he pours out his eternal wrath on sin. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ has drank that cup. Thanks be to God, because of his great grace, the gospel is true. And yes, we understand creation, fall, rescue, rescue and restoration. We understand that, that, that the world is not as it should be because we have sinned and there's brokenness, but we can repent and believe the gospel and we can pursue and recover God's design. We pursue and recover God's design according to God's word. We must know God's word because God's word directs us in God's way, which is where we discover God's will. Always remember that. God's word directs us in God's way. And when you're walking in the way of God, it is then that you can discern God's will. Because you're, when you're walking in the way according to God's word, you can pray specifically knowing that the Lord will speak, that he will guide, he will say yes, he will say no. And then you can know God's will. If you are not walking in God's way according to his word, there's no wonder you're confused. There's no wonder you don't get a sense of direction from God, that he's not answering your prayers, because you're not in his way. You've got to walk in his way, and it's always according to his word. Don't trust yourself. Proverbs 14, 12 says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is, is the way to death. No, no, no. We trust Jesus Christ. Second Peter. Second Peter, is it 2, 9? Yeah. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. We know that God knows. We trust that God knows what's best. We're not tr trusting ourselves, certainly not gonna trust other people or in human institutions because they're always gonna have an agenda. Listen, it's only common sense that you see a politician and you know that it has, he has a, she has an agenda. It's only, it's only common sense that you see a human institution and you know it has its own agenda. It, it's not necessarily what's best for me unless it's best for the individual 
Now here's what we know about God. He always does what's best for his children. We can always trust him. And friends, we must teach our children to do that. Understanding, write it down. Defining moments set the trajectory of every, of every child's life. So here we see at the end, I love verse 19. None of his words fell to the ground. Everyone knew that now Samuel was a prophet. They knew that this man's life had been set apart. They saw his path. They saw him walking it. Mom and dad, you're choosing the trajectory of your child's life. Your children should not have to ask you on Saturday night or Sunday morning, Mom, Dad, we going to church? It needs to be understood what you're doing on Sunday morning. It should never be a question in your child's mind. Okay, after breakfast, am I reading God's Word and praying? Doesn't even need to be a question. The question is, what am I reading and where? Because you are setting the trajectory for your child. They already know this is how we live. This is what we do. We have a decision to make. What's the first thing we're going to do? We're going to pray. Because this is the trajectory. This is our way. But mom and dad, you got to make a decision. Individual, you've got to make a decision. Young people, you need to make a decision. You can go your own way. Leads to death. You know, at the end of Joshua, before the, the time of the judges, Joshua, Joshua could tell what was about to happen. He could tell that the people were beginning to turn away from God. So look at what he said in Joshua 24, beginning in verse 14. Joshua said to the people, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Church, do our children know that we serve the Lord? Mom and dad, grandparents, do your children know that you serve the Lord? Students, college students, young adults, do, do your friends, do your peers, do your professors, do your bosses, do they know that you serve the Lord? They'll know it because you know him and you love him and you obey him in Jesus' name. It's a choice you must make. Some of you are choosing to walk without Christ. Your destiny it's death. But you can repent today and Christ will forgive you and give you new life. Some of you claim to be Christians, but you don't live like it. Repent and renew your, your faith walk in Christ. Some of you need help. We all need help. Ask the God who loves you, who knows what's best for you, and he will provide come to his altar. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, your word is true. We can count on your word. You are good and you want what is best for us. We can trust in you. Lord, I pray for some today who need to come and submit their lives to you, repenting of sin, believing in Christ's death and resurrection, beginning a new life, being born again. Some who need to renew their commitment to you, Christ, because they've wandered away. Others who need help, they're struggling in their home. They're struggling at work. They're struggling with health needs. They're struggling with anxieties and fears. Lord, you know. 
They need you. We need you. We need an awakening. So we're going to pray what's there in our bulletins. Father, we come to you. We're desperate for you. You truly are our only hope. And so we pray. Church, come and pray.